0: Open your Bibles to Amos, open your Bibles to the minor prophet Amos, actually we're going to start in Amos chapter 4, we'll be jumping around throughout the text of Amos, but in a moment here I'll be looking at Amos chapter 4. As you turn there, I will tell you a, a quick story. So my sister and her husband are big fans of amusement parks. They enjoy all the spinny rides and the roller coasters, and so they go to a lot of amusement parks. Now, there's a large one up in northern Ohio called Cedar Point. This is a big, big amusement park. I'm not talking about like Jolly Roger over there in Ocean City. If you've been to uh, uh, Bush Gardens near Williamsport or Hershey, Park up in PA, or Six Flags up in New Jersey. This is bigger, actually, than any of them. I looked it up. This is a huge, huge park, Cedar Point. So some years back, my, my sister and her husband are taking their four children, and they're going to the amusement park, and they're standing in front of the newest roller coaster. There's a debate going on. Should we get in the long line now, or should we go ride some other rides first? Well, they decide to go and ride some other rides, and so they begin to walk away to the next ride when one of them looks around and realizes their 7-year-old didn't get the message. He's not with them. A 7-year-old is missing at Cedar, uh, Cedar Point. So they begin to call out for him, and there's no response. They go back to where they were, waiting in front of that roller coaster, and by this point, the youngster has wandered off. He's not there. Let me say again. This is a huge park, 364 acres, and on any given sunny Saturday, they'll easily have 50,000 guests, of at least least, which at least 30,000 are taller than a seven-year-old. He is lost in a sea of humanity. How does this go? Well, for a few moments, you keep your cool. And you start yelling out, and you're calling out his name, and you begin to spread out, and you begin to uh, create a little larger circle, and you're calling for him, and you're looking for him, and you're keeping your calm, we're going to find him. It's going to be. A, but inside, what's beginning to happen? Fear is beginning to rise up. Mom is beginning to get a little panicky. It's all fine if it lasts five, six, seven minutes. It took them 45 Minutes. You know what my sister was like at that point? She's apoplectic. She is on the verge of just utter despair. Every horrible thought is spinning through her head. Every possible conceivable worst outcome is now right there at the forefront of her mind. You may be thinking to yourself, well, Scott, isn't the kid also equally panicked? No, not at all. In fact, if you knew my nephew, you'd understand. You see, what happened was, a few minutes after Mom and Dad and his siblings wandered away, a stranger saw him unattended and took him to the nearest security station. And because the stranger was concerned that he would be scared, she bought him an ice cream. If you knew my nephew, you know that's all he needs to be happy He's totally chilling. He's sitting in the shade on a hot day enjoying ice cream. There's no fear in him, there's no panic, there's no concern whatsoever. So what happens at the moment of reunion? Mom Aah! and she's up in his face. What are you, where would you do? You I've told you! You can't wander away in a crowd like this. What if mommy didn't find you? You've got to hang on to my hand. How many times have we talked about these things? Now, why the intensity out of, my, out of my sister? Why is mom intense in that moment? Because of a genuine concern for her child. She understands the dangers that are out there in a way he cannot. And she wants to impress upon him in a moment of intensity to strike a little fear in him so this doesn't happen again. But how is a child perceiving this encounter? Relax, Mom. Chill out. Everything's okay. I got ice cream. You found me. It's all good. Why are you so worked up? Because the child cannot comprehend the dangers. The child cannot understand the risk. You know, in the days of the prophet Amos, Israel was lost, but chilling on ice cream. Israel was sitting in the shade, enjoying ice cream, thinking life is pretty good, oblivious to the danger out there. Look at Amos 4.1. We saw last week, when we studied Jonah that Jonah had foretold a time of national resurgence in Israel, a time when, when there would be prosperity and wealth and peace and military expansion. And Amos comes in at near the end of that time and is now ministering to a very well-off, very prosperous, very happy, content Israel, enjoying its ice cream. Amos 4.1 touches on this. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, Bring that we may drink. I took a lot of seminary classes. Not one time did they ever suggest that we call the women of our congregation cows. Cows. But Amos here uses the metaphor of the cows of Bashan for the women of Israel. Bashan was a rich pasture land, and those cows were fat cows that were there. And he is saying to these women, you have enjoyed the prosperity that God has sent. You have fattened yourselves on the wealth of the nation. You're enjoying your ice cream, but you don't realize the risk. Flip over one more chapter to 5, uh, chapter 5, look at verses 21, 22, and 23. Amos 5, 21, 22, and 23. <clears throat> I hate, I despise your feast, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs um, to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. The people of Israel think they're all good. They're calling themselves Christians. They're saying, look, we still worship the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Oblivious to the fact that that God has said, I detest your worship. You are in grave danger. Now, you're eating your ice cream, enjoying the prosperity foretold by Jonah, enjoying the the national resurgence, and you are warned that despite your outward appearance of religion, God is saying, listen, you are in trouble. What do you do? Let me tell you what you don't do. Look at Amos 7, verse 12. Look at Amos 7, verse 12. And Amaziah... Amaziah was a priest in Israel, in the city of Bethel, which was the home of Israel's worship, of the northern nation's worship. Amaziah is a priest there. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go, flee away to the land of Judah, go back home, and eat bread there, and prophesy there. But never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary, and it is a temple of The kingdom. The priesthood of the nation of Israel says to Amos, we don't want to hear your message. You're saying that we're in danger? We're not in danger. Look around you. Everything is great. It's never been better. We're wealthy. We're at peace. We're expanding. And we're worshiping. And we're content." They're sitting in the shade, eating their ice cream, telling Amos to chill out, why you all worked up. Far too many Christians read the book of Amos from the perspective of the child. Chill out, God. Why you all worked up? Why you yelling at me? Everything's good. Back off. They don't understand what's going on in the heart of the parent. My sister was intense. Not out of anger, but out of compassion. Out of concern. Out of a desire to impress upon her child the seriousness of the situation so that danger could be averted. The intensity in that moment is not about how much she despises the child, It's not meant to make the child feel bad. It's meant to protect the child. Through Amos, God comes to his people with that kind of intensity, that kind of emotion, that kind of passion. And we are foolish, immature children if we hear the warning of Amos and say, boy, this guy just gets all worked up over nothing. It means we don't understand the risk that's really out there. As we consider Amos this morning, we're going to see that one part of his message is that all the people of the earth, every nation, must face the judgment of God against sin. Every nation will face the judgment. All people face God's judgment. He is then going to point out to the nation of Israel that because you are God's chosen people, Your judgment is going to be even harsher. The judgment on God's chosen people is harsher. All people face God's judgment. God's people face a harsher judgment. But then, He's going to close out with a picture that what is foretold is not for sure. What is foretold is not for sure. If there's a message, a theme that runs through the minor prophets, this is it. Jonah goes to Nineveh and preaches 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Did that happen? No. It was a warning of what could happen if they didn't change courses, but they changed courses. They did what we read in our catechism this morning. They believed in God and repented unto life. And they were saved. All people face the judgment of God. God's people face a harsher judgment. But what is foretold is not for sure. Lord, let us hear your loving warning through Amos this morning. And let us be drawn in by a compassionate God who offers us a way out, a way to avoid the danger. Of judgment amen we last looked at Amos uh, uh, chapter 7 look there again we looked at verse 13 look at the next two verses 14 and 15 so in verse 13 Amaziah tells Amos go back home to Judah go preach there go prophesy there we don't want you here look how Amos responds in verses 14 and 15 then Amos answered and said to Amaziah I was no prophet nor a prophet's son but I was a herdsman, uh, he tells us in verse 1, he's actually a shepherd, uh, a sheepkeeper, and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. Now, this is a little confusing. In verse 15, Amos admits that the Lord sent him to prophesy. But in verse 14, Amos says, I was not a prophet. Is he confused? Is he uncertain about his own calling? Well, we've got to understand a little bit of the context of the time. If you look in 2 Kings, if you just start reading through 2 Kings, which Amos would fall into that same time period as in 2 Kings, you find multiple references, I think it's like eight different references, to a group of men called the Sons of the Prophets. The sons of the prophets. And if you look at each time they appear in Kings, you begin to recognize what's going on. They're a group of young men being trained in full-time ministry. It's a seminary of sorts. They're being trained and prepared for a lifetime of full-time declaration of the Word of God. And Amos is saying he's not one of them. I'm not a full-time prophet. I'm not a professional prophet. I'm not a full-time minister. I'm not the son of a prophet. In other words, I'm not part of that group of young men being trained. I am a shepherd and an orchardist. And God called me to ministry. Let's take a look then at the ministry of Amos. Let's go back to Amos chapter 1. Because this shepherd, this untrained man, is a mighty and gifted preacher. So in Amos 1 and 2, we're going to see the the message that all people face God's judgment. All people face God's judgment. Let me begin in Amos 1, verse 3. Thus says the Lord... For three, for three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So, I will send fire upon the house of Haziel. Haziel is one of the kings of, uh, of Syria in Damascus. And it shall devour the strongholds of ben a major city in Syria. I will break the gate bar of Damascus, the capital of Assyria. Uh, Assyria, sorry, Syria, and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon, and him who holds the scepter from Beth Eden, and the people of Syria shall go into exile to Kir, says the Lord. This establishes the pattern for the rest of this opening sermon. So let's understand it real quickly, the pattern here. In each of these, in the the following uh, sermon, what we're going to see is that Amos is going to name a place. And this is where you're going to want that map. Now's the time to pull out that map and have it handy. And as I go through, I will help point out where you need to be paying attention. He's going to name a place, then he's going to summarize the sin of that place. Here we have that the people of Damascus have threshed with iron sledges the people of Gilead. They've been extraordinarily cruel to their fellow human beings. He's going to use this rhetorical, this poetic device for three sins, even for four. Now, this is not God's version of the three strikes, you're outlaws that we passed here in the States in the 90s. Rather, this is just a poetic device to say, God keeps track. He knows what you've done. He knows your sins. And while he has been patient with you, What did we read in our catechism? What does every sin deserve? It deserves God's damnation. But he's allowed you to sin, and to keep sinning, and to even keep sinning. He has been patient for three sins, even for four. He could have wiped you out after the first. He let it slide. He let you give you more time. He waited upon you even up to the fourth time. That's the poetic device being used here. So the nation will be named, their sin will be summarized in the poetic device of God's patience with them. Then there will be a statement of what will happen to them. We saw how the bars will, you know, be torn down on the cities and the fire and all the things we just saw there. That pattern is going to be repeated over and over and over again. Now, a couple of comments here. One, this is not a sermon that was, that, that, that Amos was just winging it. He was just on the fly, spontaneously preaching this. He is sent by God to be a prophet. He's, he lives in Judah. Uh, Amos one tells us he's from Tekoa, which is actually south of Jerusalem, but he's been sent to the northern nation of Israel. So he is an itinerant preacher wandering through the northern land of Israel. This is a sermon that he has given dozens of times, perhaps hundreds of times, as he goes from village to village and town to town. When he sets up his tent revival meeting, this is the opening night sermon. It is a polished, carefully crafted, expertly constructed, rhetorically amazing sermon meant to capture the attention of the people of God. But because of time and distance, some of its effect might be lost on us. And that's why I ask you to pull out that map. So let's, let me go through the sermon in summary. Verse 3, looking at your map. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four. You see the green in the northeast? Damascus is the capital of Syria. Verse 6, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four. You see Gaza in the red in the lower left, southwest of Israel? Verse nine Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four. See Tyre in the northeast in the brown? Verse eleven, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four. Edom's the yellow, due south, at the very bottom of your map. Verse 13, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four, that's the orange to the east. And by the way, I'm skipping the part, in each of these, he then summarizes their sin and tells of their destruction. I've skipped over those things. Chapter 2, verse 1, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, the purple nation in the southeast. So now, with the help of our map, we understand what Amos' original audience would have understood. What is he doing in this rhetorical device? What is he preaching? He's preaching the destruction, God's judgment, on all the traditional enemies that surround Israel. Syria, and then uh, Gaza, and then Tyre, and then Edom, and the Ammonites, and slowly crisscrossing back and forth. All the surrounding traditional enemies are going to be judged by God. Now, if you are an Israelite, if you are a Hebrew hearing this sermon, what are you doing at this moment? And in fact, you actually know the answer to this. What word are they saying? Say it again. Amen is actually a Hebrew word, transliterated into English. They're saying, Amen! Preach it, Amos. We love it. Jonah foretold the rise of our nation, Israel, and now Amos is foretelling the destruction of our enemies. Things couldn't be better in Israel right now. We love this sermon, Amos. Keep it coming. All the peoples of the world, all the nations of the earth, even those who do not acknowledge Israel's God, even those who do not claim to bring it into the New Testament era, who will not admit that Jesus is Lord, all of them will be judged by God. Now there are some who will say, "Well, that doesn't seem right. How is it that God can judge those who maybe have never even heard of Jesus? They've never heard the gospel. They don't know anything. They haven't had a chance to reject. How can God judge them?" But you see what's going on in the text. They're not being judged for having rejected the gospel. They're not being condemned for having uh, uh, refused mercy. They're judged because of their sin. They're sinners. Each of these nations has done something wrong and God has been patient with them for three sins, even for four. But his patience runs out. It has its limits. One of the things that we forget is the the impact, the consequence of the holiness of God. Holiness is the attribute of God mentioned more than any other in the scriptures. In fact, it is mentioned more often than the second and third most common attributes combined. It is the preeminent characteristic of our God according to his word. And while we are quick to talk about his love and his compassion and his mercy and those things are appropriate, they are part of who he is. The defining characteristic is his holiness. And because he is holy, sin must be punished. It's not okay to allow sinners into his presence simply because they didn't reject the gospel. He will not compromise his holiness for that. God is holy and sinners will be condemned. And by the way, we know this. Everyone knows this. Has there ever been a religion, has there ever been a, a, a people group found on some far-flung island or in some remote jungle whose religion didn't include a sense of right and wrong? And a sense of having to make up for what you did wrong? Sacrifices that have to be made, payment that is due. And by the way, the atheistic uh, 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 pluralism that is our religion in America today still knows this. There's a right and a wrong. Just open the newspaper. Our society is constantly blasting people for having done the wrong thing. Their morality may be messed up, but they still have a morality. Now, here's one of the interesting things. That means they know, deep down inside, that there is a standard by which people are judged. In space, when you're spinning out there away from any planet, when there is no gravity pulling on you, there is no up or down, because there's no reference point. If there was truly no moral standard out there, there'd be no reference point. There would be no sense of right and wrong. But our society holds even its own to an amazing, is an unforgiving standard. Just ask Governor Northam there in Virginia for something stupid he did back in college. He's paying the price today. Diane Feinstein, Senator Feinstein, you know this a couple of weeks ago? She was the first woman to be mayor of San Francisco And then she was the first woman to be elected to the Senate from the state of California. And she has been uh, uh, their uh, senator for a couple of decades now. Her name was just recently stripped off from a public school and a public park in San Francisco because she broke the standard of morality. You see, when she was mayor in San Francisco, History Museum was vandalized. And she authorized city money to restore some artifacts to that museum. And one of those artifacts was a Confederate flag. Now, do you think for, Di- for one moment Diane Fein- Feinstein is a Confederate sympathizer? But she dared to put back an artifact 40 years ago, and her name is being stripped from the public buildings in San Francisco today. The standard of morality in our society is there because we are created in the image of a God who has a standard of morality. All people know there is right and wrong. They may not know what is right and wrong, but they know there is right. And there is wrong. And they know that they're accountable to it. These people are judged for their sin. Which, by the way, means the compassionate thing to do, the kind thing to do, is to tell them. To give them a heads up of what the real standard of morality is, who the real judge is, and who they are actually accountable to. Because that's the only hope they have of getting it right. Pagans are condemned for their sin, but so too are the church members. Let's continue in Amos' opening sermon. I listed those nations, but I said, already gave you the heads up that if you're a careful listener back then, if you're a careful Hebrew listener, you know the sermon ain't over. How do you know? Follow along with me. For three sins of Damascus, one... Then he says Gaza, 2, Tyre, 3, Edom, 4, the Ammonites, 5, Moab, 6. What's wrong with this? If you are a listener to Amos' sermon, you know it ain't over. For in the Hebrew mind, 6 is the number of incompletion, imperfection. Of all that falls short, there is a reason that in Revelation the number of the beast is 6, six six imperfect, incomplete, falling short. Seven. That's the number of fullness in the Hebrew mind. No way Amos leaves this hanging at six nations. And so what are they all that doing? They're all on the edge of their seats waiting for the next nation. Let it be Assyria Come on, Amos. Give us Assyria. And we look down at chapter 2, verse 4. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah at what weight? Judah? I mean, we're not huge fans of Judah up here in the north, up in Israel. But come on, Judah? I mean, they speak Hebrew like we speak Hebrew. They worship the same Yahweh we worship. Uh, uh, we both trace our ancestry back to the same Abraham. You sure about that, Amos? You sure you got that right? Judah? Isn't that where Yahweh's temple is? Or at least the original. We got one here in Bethel now, but isn't that the original temple down there in in Judah? Amos has crafted this amazing sermon that has drawn the people in, has them listening. And then in chapter 2, verse 6, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for Four. In the words of one of my favorite preachers, if you can't say amen, you better say ouch. And at this point, all of Israel is going, ouch, or they should have been. And the rest of the book of Amos is an account, a detailed account, of the sins of Israel and the destruction which awaits her. You see, his message is one of God's holiness extends even to God's people. It's not just that the pagans out there are going to be condemned for their sin, but the church people, now notice my careful wording there, I didn't say believers, I didn't say the redeemed, the regenerate, but church people are accountable for their sin. Being in Israel does not exempt you from God's holiness and its impact on your life. All people face God's judgment. The pagans do so for their sin. The pew-sitters do so for their sin. All people face God's judgment. But then we look at chapter 3. Amos chapter 3, and we see that God's people face a particularly harsh judgment. It is a harsher one because they are God's people. In part because of the prior grace God has shown them. Look at chapter 3. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. If you're familiar with the Old Testament at all, you know that that is a very common starting point for God's dialogue with his people. I saved you. I was gracious to you. The Egyptians were a a mightier, more noble, richer, uh, more powerful people. I could have called them to be my people, but instead I picked you and saved you from there. Verse 2, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Now, if you understand the omniscience of God, he knows everything. He knows all the families of the earth. What does this mean? Well, this is that knowing in the most intimate sense. Genesis 4, verse 1, And Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore a son. God knows Israel with the closeness that a husband knows his wife. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. And the remainder of the book is going to be a description in various ways and various times of that punishment. But verse three continues to make the case, uh, uh I'm sorry, chapter three continues to make the case. Verse three: Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? understand? We're here together, Israel. You and I are together because of an agreement, because of a covenant. Verse 7, for the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secrets to his servants, the prophets. This isn't a shock to you. I've told you this was coming. Obadiah and Elijah and Elisha and Joel and Jonah have all been preaching to you, and countless unnamed prophets, all those sons of the prophets from 2 Kings, they've all been preaching to you. I've told you. God has been gracious to Israel. And he has given them every opportunity. It is my sister saying to her son, Honey, isn't it enough that mommy and daddy brought you here so you could have a good time? Why would you wander off? Do you not appreciate what we've done for you? Do you not appreciate that we wanted you to have a fun day here. Israel has failed to appreciate God's grace. And for that, they face a harsher judgment. And then in chapter 4, we see that they face a harsher judgment also because of the previous warnings they had been given. Verse 2, the Lord God has sworn by his holiness, there it is again, that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall, t- when, when they shall take you away with hooks. Uh, I, I should have set the context. This, verse 2, remember in verse 1, we open with verse 1, the cows of Bashan, the women who are, abu- are, are, are abusing their wealth, now verse 2 he continues the metaphor of the cow. Your enemies are going to put a hook through your nose and guide you away in ways that you don't want to go. There's a warning here. Verse 6, I gave you cleanness of teeth. It's not because they had good dental hygiene. It's because there was starvation. There was nothing to eat with which to dirty their teeth. In all your cities, and lack of bread, in all your places. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Verse 7, I also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain and and on the field which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. In chapter 3, we see that he has... Uh, recounted his benefits to them, his graces to them, his mercies to them, and said, you are going to be judged more harshly because you didn't respond to that. Chapter 4, he says, and I also tried to, I, I gave you the carrot, but I also gave you the stick. I have chastised you. Mommy and Daddy have warned you over and over and over again not to wander away in crowds. We have told you not to let go of our hand. We've said that there will be consequences. You haven't listened. And the judgment which is going to come upon them is destruction. Look at chapter 5 and 6. Chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen, to to no more to rise, is the virgin Israel. Forsaken on her land with none... To raise her up. When the Church of God, when the people of God refuse God and ignore Him, they cease to exist. He is going to wipe them out and replace them with the remnant of Israel. Look at the next verse. Um, uh, for thus says the Lord God, The city that went out as a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which went out with a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. It will be a remnant. God will keep for himself a remnant. But that remnant will then be rebuilt, and the church will be wiped out. You know, it's interesting. Over the last hundred years, as theological liberalism has crept into the North American church, it has always been sold as a way to appeal to the culture to better connect with the wider uh, uh, North American culture. You know, if we'll just uh, uh, let go of some of these silly ideas about miracles and, and inerrancy, we can get more people in. And every single church that is bought into that lie is a mere shell of what it once was. The Presbyterian Church in America... Not, sorry, sorry, sorry. The Presbyterian Church in the United States of America... 1950 had 5 million members when the population of this country was about 150 million. Today, when the population of the country is about 340 million, its membership is dropped below 2 million. How is that liberalism working out for you? When you veer from God's word, destruction is what awaits God is holy, and so his condemnation rests upon all people because all people are sinners. This is true of the pagans, the surrounding nations. It's true of the Pusiters, Judah, and Israel. God's condemnation is particularly harsh on those who who are in the church because of the grace they have been given, because of the warnings they have received, um, and all of this leads to destruction. But finally, what is foretold is not for sure. What is foretold is not for sure. In chapter 7, Amos opens up with an account of some various visions, a vision of the destruction of locusts, a vision of the destruction by fire. Uh, um, And in these visions, he initially, uh, um, we see him there, uh, um, he he sees the vision and he pleads for mercy. He says, Lord God, if you do this, Israel will be wiped out, it will be destroyed. And God relents and does not bring The destruction. Then he sees the fire and he says, Lord God, Amos says, Lord, if you do this, your people will be destroyed, and God relents and does not bring the fire. The locusts don't come, the fire doesn't come. So verse so chapter seven opens up with what message? When God warns you, if you go to him and beg his mercy as Amos has done. He will give you mercy. Destruction will not come. But remember, we already saw chapter 7. In the middle of chapter 7, what happens? Amos is preaching the third vision, a vision of a plumb line. A plumb line is a string with a heavy weight at the end. It's uh, designed to be able to get things perfectly vertical. It's used in construction to make sure that the walls are straight and true. It's a vision of a plumb line being held up to Israel. It's a terrifying vision to Amos. Why? Because he knows the people are crooked. They're not straight. If God actually evaluates them with his plumb line, we are in trouble. But before Amos can beg mercy, as he has in the first two visions, we saw what happened. Amaziah, the priest in the north, interrupts Amos and says, Go home. Quick, get out of our face. Chill out, Amos. You don't need to be so worked up over everything. We got our ice cream, and we're pretty happy. Why you so worked up? And the next portion of seven and of eight is just description after description after description of the utter destruction of the people of God. It is terrifying. But then something happens. Look at Amos 9, verse 9. Amos 9, 9. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among the nations as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. So, one more description of judgment, of, of, of God coming against them. But look at verse 10. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say disaster shall not overtake or meet us. Okay, In that day. You were here for Joel a couple of weeks ago. That day, this is the day of the Lord. The day of judgment. Remember, there are many days of the Lord. Many days of his judgment. This is not the final judgment. Uh, uh may not necessarily be the final judgment. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches. Raise up its ruins rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. And all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord, who does this? Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper. It's, the, the crops are growing so fast they can't get them out of the field fast enough. The prominence shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountain shall drip sweet wine, and the hill shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards, drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. And thus closes the book of Amos. What is going on here in chapter 9? Chapter 7 opens with some visions. Amos begs for mercy, and mercy is granted. Then Amaziah, the priest, says, Get away, we don't want to hear your warnings. And there's this repeated description of destruction. But then in 9, the sinners are taken away, but I will rebuild. Why? There's a reference there to David. I'll rebuild the tent of David. Is the reference there to David because David is this great guy? We present him that way far too often. He's not a great guy. He is a terrible father. Every one of his sons is a mess. He is an adulterer, a polygamist, a murderer, a violator of the word of God. Bringing uh, uh, doing senses that weren't supposed to be done, all manner of other evil. David is a corrupt sinner. So why is he mentioned here? Because the one thing David knew was that his help came from the Lord. That the only way to escape the judgment of God was to beg for the mercy of God. The only one who can save you from Yahweh is Yahweh. Nobody else has the power to protect you against the wrath of a holy God against your sin. And in the midst of his sin, David did one thing repeatedly. He ran back to the Lord. Forgive me, God. Have mercy on me, God. Despite my sin, save me. And Amos brings up David and says to the people that if that's what you will do, if you will, like I did in in, in chapter 7 when I saw the visions, if you will beg for mercy, you will be saved. Mercy will be given. If you're like Amaziah in the middle of chapter 7 and you say, I don't want to hear this, and you plug your ears and enjoy your ice cream, you're going to go to hell. But if you will be like David, and in spite of your many sins... Run to God for mercy. And what is foretold is not for sure. Instead, there will be mercy. And instead, there will be grace. And instead, there will be compassion. And there will be love. For he will treat you as sons. What do we see in our New Testament reading? He will pull you to himself as a beloved son. You know, one of the little things that Hebrew writers do that is not common in English literature, they tend to put the important points at the center. We tend to leave them to the end, or or we head off at the beginning at the important points and explain them, or we build up to them at the end. They tend to put them in the center. Look at Amos 5, verses 4, 5, and 6. Amos 5, verses 4, 5, and 6. (coughs) By the way, in the Book of Lamentations and all the, the hideous description of all the the weeping and mourning and all the grief in, in, uh, in Jerusalem during the Babylonian conquest. What's in the dead center in the book of Lamentations? Your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Right smack dab in the center of the book of Lamentations. What do we have here in the center of the book of Amos? Look at verses five, uh, chapter 5, verses 4, 5, and 6. For thus says Yahweh to the house of Israel, Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel, that place of corrupt worship, Do not enter to Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba. Don't run anywhere else. Don't look for hope anywhere else. For Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek Yahweh and live. We don't use the word Yahweh as such very often today. But that name is preserved. If you take Yahweh and you add the word salvation, Yahweh is salvation. Salvation. And you put it in Greek, you get Jesus. Literally what his name means. Yahweh is salvation. The Lord saves. And Amos says, in the midst of this doom and gloom, seek me and live. The intensity of Amos may shock us. It may be off-putting. It may feel at times like God is yelling at us. But it is the intensity of that mom when she found the lost child. An intensity driven by compassion and concern and a deep-seated desire for our good. The message of Amos is not merely that God is holy and will destroy sinners message of Amos is, God is holy, he will destroy sinners, but those who run to him will be saved. Let us hear the words of Amos, not as a child lacking understanding and thinking he's yelling at us, but as a people with maturity spiritually who can go, thank you for warning me, God. Thank you for reminding me. Thank you for calling me back to understand your holiness. Thank you for reminding me of my sin. Thank you for sending me again running to the feet of Jesus, where I have my only hope. Lord, we sometimes struggle to receive a message like Amos, but in hearing it and in receiving it, we recognize that it is an act of your grace and your kindness. You do not owe us any warnings you warned Adam that if he sinned he would die. no other warning is needed and yet you continue to be patient with us. for three sins of Scott Shaw, even for four you have been patient for three sins of short harvest, even for four you have been patient. So let us hear this warning and heed its message, let us run to you, Jesus our Savior. We pray this in your name. Amen.